we're in this series that I've titled Modern Family Ties and talking about how relationships and families have changed over the years and the generations, and certainly they have. Uh, family today looks a lot different than family did to a typical family when I was growing up, and, and, uh, and so we would be wise to understand uh, the context of family and relationships and how they function well. And, and let me ask you this question. Would you agree or do you think it would be typically understood that uh, Christians have more fun than non-Christians? So you're in church, so you feel compelled to say, well, absolutely we do. How about this? Are Christian marriages more fulfilled and happier than non-Christian marriages? If that's the case, why is the divorce rate inside the church the same as it is outside the church? So there's a lot about families and relationships, maybe that we would say, well, absolutely, but when it comes down to brass tacks in the real world, maybe we need to work on them a little bit. You know, relationships in the Bible are a lot like relationships these days. They're difficult, and they're fantastic, and they're beautiful, and they're messy. If you look at families in the Bible, you look at relationships in the Bible, you look at marriage in the Bible, you're hard-pressed to find one family, one marriage in the Old Testament. You might find a couple in the New Testament that got it right. In the Old Testament, there's virtually no pot, like peaceful, good, solid marriage example in the Old Testament. Their families and marriages are full of strife and difficulty in the Old Testament. And even in the New Testament, you're hard-pressed, maybe a couple, and they're not real prominent about marriages that really got it right and families that really got it all right. Most of them got some things right. A lot of them got a lot of things wrong and struggled and failed, just like ours, right? So in this series... What I'm going to try to do is hit a couple different issues in, 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 per message. So, so there'll be something to offend everybody in every message at some point. But hopefully they'll find, you'll find one thing that you're doing well, whether, we t- whether it's in a marriage or a relationship, a friendship, a family, in your singleness, in your coupleness. Hopefully you'll find one thing you're doing well and be affirmed. Hopefully you'll find one thing that you need to work on. But especially if you're single, hopefully you'll find one thing that you can look to and plan for your future. This is who I'm going to be, and this is what I'm going to look for. Now, it's been my experience that overly religious people are very serious people. And very serious, over-religious people feel as though the more pious they are, the more proper they must be. And what it creates oftentimes in churches and in marriages in churches is this overabundance of serious, pious sticks in the mud. In the Bible, fun is regarded as intrinsic and important parts of the marriage relationship. Having fun in the Bible, are considered intrinsic and important parts of a marriage relationship and thereby a part of a family. And so, just at the front end, I want to address one of these issues about 
marriage in the context of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 26, we have an example of a married couple, Isaac and Rebekah. Now, there was a famine in the land where they were living, besides the other famine in Abraham's time that drove them down to Egypt. And Isaac went to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines in Gerar. That just means he was a, he was a non-Hebrew, wasn't part of God's, God's group. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Don't go down to Egypt. Live, live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I'll be with you, and I'll bless you. For to you and your descendants, I'll give all these lands, and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. So you understand what I'm saying? There was a famine where uh, uh, Isaac and his wife Rebecca were living. They wanted to bolt, because after all, when tough times hit, we want to go somewhere where it's not tough, right? Right? God says, stay where you are. Has God ever kept you in a tough spot? And you're like, okay, wait a time out here. You're supposed to make this stuff better. And he says, no, no, just stay put for a little bit. I got you there. That's what he tells them. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands, and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and will give them all these lands. And through your offspring, all nations will on earth will be blessed. Because of Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands, my decrees, my instructions. He said, stay put. I got something good planned. I'm going to be with you. It's going to be okay, but it's tough right now. Maybe that's the one thing you need to hear this morning. Maybe that's, maybe that's all, you got, all you need. Stay put. God's already there. He's got something good. It's going to come out of it. Just trust him and stay, but don't go running off. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she's my sister. Because he was afraid to say, she's my wife. Here's why. Because she was smoking hot. I mean, she was just dropped dead. She wasn't just one of them pretty girls. She was one of them girls that was so hot it made you feel ugly. I mean, she was one of those that was like, <sighs> you understand what I'm saying? I mean, she was like, Whoa. you see Wayne's World? She'll wing. You know, it was just one of those, like, if she were a president, she would be Abraham Lincoln. You know, it just, she was, you don't get my Wayne's World reference, that's right. So that's why he said she's my sister, because he, he figured if the king knows she's my wife, he'll kill me to get her. That, that's, how they, that's how they played back then. When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, looked down from the window and saw Isaac sporting with his wife, Rebekah. So they're in this foreign place. Just understand the context. Famine had hit. They're in a bad spot. They're stressed. They had no resources. They're hungry. They're worried. They're begging God, get us out of this. Let's go somewhere else. And God says, you just stay put where you are. And God leaves them there in that tight spot. And it is not fun. It's not pleasurable. It's not happy. There's a lot of lessons we could look at in this passage of Genesis 26, but there's one that gets overlooked time and time again, especially in the church. Because the church, a bunch of sticks in the mud oftentimes. And it's this relationship of this marriage between Isaac and Rebekah. She was so good looking that he was convinced that the king or the other men would kill him to get her. And so this lie, she's my sister, 
Because then at least if they took her, they wouldn't kill him. It's kind of messed up. And this strange passage, Isaac had been there a long time. Abimelech, king of Philistines, looked down from the window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. See, the King James Version says sporting. Because the King James tries so hard to be so proper. And some translators understand sporting, trying to be the most proper and PC they can to interpret it as laughing. And so some commentators will say, well, Rebecca, or Isaac's just, he, they're having fun, he's making his wife laugh. And after all, that is a legitimate quality in a marriage. Like how many of you were attracted to your spouse initially because it just made you laugh? One of you? Shelly, you didn't raise your hand. That's the thing you said like most about me. I can make you laugh. I'd hope it would be as good looking or smart or intelligent. She said, no, you're goofy and make me laugh. And so, and so that's how some people interpret it. But most translate it caressing. I you know, get the picture. They're outdoors. They're in the open. And he's caressing her. They're having fun together. What blows me away is that she's letting him caress her. Understand, the Jewish teachers who understood the scripture would say this, to play with one's wife and caress her and to make her laugh is both a description and a prescription of biblical law and example. Do you understand what they're saying? It is biblical law. It's part of biblical law as a prescribed law for a husband and wife. You know where this is going? To caress each other, to play with each other, and for her to let him. I'm just reading the Bible. And there's no amens from anybody. That's interesting. Now, now, now think how stressful Rebecca's and Isaac's life were. They got no money. They got no food. They're in famine. They're in a tough spot. They're stressed. They're anxious. They're worried. They're concerned. How did they address all that stress? By laughing in intimacy. You understand? And this is what most spouses don't fully understand about their relationship. And when a husband and wife are too overwhelmed by stress, by family, by the job, by their finances, or when they allow themselves to habitually be too busy and too tired to make time to play, they're neglecting both the prescription and the description of Scripture. And they're headed towards neglect and resentment. You understand? I'm just talking about the Bible. So to neglect playing with each other, that doesn't make the other stresses go away. The stresses are still there. They don't make it go away. Isaac and Rebecca still had stress. They're still in a tough spot. But when the marriage is playful and joyful and sensual, the other things, though there, they're bearable. Do you understand? And this is the responsibility of a husband and a wife. Not just when you're dating, not just when you're first married. See, God has done something unique 
when he made relationships, especially in the marriage relationship. Back in the beginning, the Lord God said, it's not good for a man to be alone, so I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. And the Lord had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, the animal, wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, wow, man. Get it? Whoa, man. You get it? Woman. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She'll be called, whoa, man. Look at that. For she was taken out of man. This is why the man will leave his father and mother. and like, I'm out of here, pops. And be united to his wife. They'll become one flesh. The intent is clear. The implication is clear. What's happening there? Adam and his wife were both naked. And they're okay with it. When the Bible says that God will create a helper for him, the Hebrew word is literally a help meet. That's a weird phrase, a help meet. It, some translate it as a helper that, that are face to face with each other. The implication is they're mirror opposites of each other. Adam, God will create for Adam his mirror opposite of him. When you realize that you are married to someone who is the opposite of you, guess what? That is God's fix for you. You understand? Most of the time, we get it backwards. God says, I want you to embrace their differences and follow their differences into your uncomfortability. See, most of the time we want to marry someone and we want them to make us more comfortable and do things like we would do. I understand that. It seems to me as though my life and my marriage, my family, everybody else's life would be a lot easier and simpler and better if they just do it like I do it. Right? But God says, no, no, no. I'm going to make for you someone who will be your mirror opposite. Follow their oppositeness into your uncomfortability because in your uncomfortability, according to their oppositeness, you're better. Do you understand? See, our problem is that we let their differences become our disagreements. How many times have we gotten in fight with people that we cared about because they were, did things differently? And this isn't just in the context of marriage. This is the context family, friends, any relationship. And so one of the biblical instructions for marriage, for family, for relationships is to lean into the differences of each other and submit to them, especially in the context of marriage, and to enjoy their craziness, that's the opposite of you. And so what that means for some of us, you need to go to bed early instead of staying up late because it's different than you and that's what they do. Or you need to start staying up later because it's different than you. Or you need to keep talking about it because that's different than you. Or you need to shut up finally, because that's different than you. Or you need to follow their spontaneity and don't overplan so dang much. Or you actually need to make a plan. And maybe, just maybe, you need to eat the weird food with them and follow them into their uncomfortability. <laughs> 
What I'm saying is to start celebrating and enjoying their differences rather than resisting their differences. And the closer you are in relationships with a person, and it's not just in the context of husband and wife, but this makes every relationship better. Now, Adam and Eve were in the garden a long time, or Adam was in the garden a long time before Eve ever showed up on the scene. He was in the garden so long, he thought of all the names to the animals. That's a lot of, that's a lot of names. When did the devil show up? After Eve showed up. Why didn't the devil show up when Adam was naming the animals? The reason why the devil waited is because the devil understands. He knows how powerful, he knows how blessed it is when a husband and a wife love in unison and agree with each other and agree with God. Do you understand? And because he knows how powerful, how blessed it is when a husband and wife and thereby their family are in unison with each other and with God, he knows how powerful that is. That's what he will attack. That's what he'll go after. Now Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, as recorded in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he kind of started this shift spiritually in our relationship with God. And he said, you have heard that it is said, don't do this and don't do that. He said, I'm telling you that the problem doesn't start with your behavior. He says, I'm telling you the problem starts in your heart. He said, you've heard it said, don't do this. Don't I say that when you begin thinking this way, that the problem starts in your heart before it ever shows up in your life. You want to know one reason it's so hard for you and I to stay happy? Is because we're so easily offended. And that's why it's so hard for us to stay happy. Let me give you a secret. If you want to make it easier for you to stay happy, make it more difficult for you to get offended. Do you understand what I'm saying? And it seems as though, like the older generation, the pioneers, those who were born, born before, before 1946, they weren't offended about nothing. They just kept their head down and grinded it out. And, 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 and then the, the baby boom generation, 1946 to 64, you know, they, they, their parents came up hard. And it was one of the greatest generations in the world. And, you know, they, they kind of kept to themselves and, and kept their head down and worked for prosperity and, and, and just grinded it out. Gen X came along and, and uh, you know, we didn't have all the social media stuff. And so we just kind of, it, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was more difficult for us to be so offended. And you got this, this super young generation now, this Gen Z. That who knows how they're going to turn out. You know, and it's just generationally, you think, what, you know, it's just changing. And, and you notice I left out the millennials. And if, if you're a millennial and offended by that, we've got a trophy for you outside just to make sure you understand how special you are. <laughs> um, I'm kidding. I've got to keep this lighthearted because, you know, it gets a little bit tense. So John said this, or Jesus said this, the thief comes on to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come that they might have life, life added to life, abundant life. See, the enemy's agenda is destruction. His strategy is division. His tactic is offense. 
The enemy's first strategy in a marriage is to divide it. His first strategy in a family is to divide it. His first strategy in relationships and friendships is, is to divide it. Jesus said a house divided against itself cannot stand. Abraham Lincoln didn't come up with that. Jesus did. And the enemy is subtle and strategic. How many times have you gotten into a fight with someone that you deeply cared about that you didn't see coming? Because he starts in these small little ways and he allows, he plants these little seeds of offense to start growing in our heart and division always happens out of an offense. And the closer the relationship, the greater the, the, the opportunity. The closer the relationship, the greater the opportunity for intimacy. The closer the relationship, the greater the opportunity for offense. We've got to be very careful. And I'm talking about the everyday stuff that we get offended by that can lead to the big stuff, but the idea is to deal with the little stuff before it becomes a big stuff. See, God takes two and makes it one. The devil takes one and makes it two. How? One small offense at a time. Do you understand? And most of the time when we get offended, it shuts down our desire for oneness. And if God created Adam and Eve, husband and wife in the garden, to be one, when one of them gets offended, it shuts down the desire for oneness and intimacy is forfeited and starts to grow bitterness and resentment. Do you understand? Same thing with your kids. If you have children, the intimacy shuts down and the desire for oneness as a family, as a husband, as a father, as a mother, shuts down. Same thing with great friends, just great relationships. A fence enters the heart of one of you and all of a sudden you don't talk to each other anymore. And a friendship dies. See, we have to understand that the breeding ground for offense is unmet expectations. When one's expectations aren't met. Now, here's the thing with expectations. When you first get together in a relationship, you have to express your expectations. Because how's the other person supposed to know? Like, I don't care what you think in marriage. Like, you can't read each other's mind. Especially early on. But later on, after you've been together a long time, you know the other's expectations. Yeah, unless you're just completely dull. I don't think any of us are this dull. If you've been in a relationship with anybody, especially a marriage relationship, but even in a family or just friends, you know their expectations. And so early on, you have to express your expectations, but later on, you have to remember theirs. You understand? Like, we don't have the excuse anymore. We've had a relationship with someone for a long time to say, well, you just don't tell me what you want. You, you know what? We've been together long enough. You know. And for me to have to spell it out time and time and time again just proves to me that you don't really know me. That's offensive. Right? And it's one unacknowledged effort after another. It's one uncelebrated accomplishment after another. It's one unappreciated chore done after another. It's always seeing the cuff half empty rather than half full. And it's one offense after another after another. If only we had an example of one who had the right to be offended but didn't hold it against somebody. If only we had an example. 
If only we had an example of one who dealt with the offense and then forgave. If only we had an example of someone who separated our offense as far as the east is from the west. See, successful relationships are built by getting past offenses quickly and they're ruined by holding offenses tightly. So here's the thing. When we choose to hold on to offenses of each other, it becomes resentment. And even when the relationship, the family, whatever, can't be, the, 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 the friendship can't be saved, because not all of them can be saved. Some of them are just, are just dead. But even when the relationship can't be saved, when the person holds on to the resentment, holds on to the offense, resentment takes over the heart. I wonder how many people have been controlled in their present because of a past relationship that failed. Because they've held on to the offense. Do you understand? So the goal is to get over it, to let it go, to give it over, when possible to be reconciled with them, but that's not always possible. To be reconciled with yourself and to let go of the offense and be reconciled with God. Because unchecked resentment produces profound regret. Now, I'm not suggesting that you tolerate abuse. I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm just saying, just realize that the offense is an event. To be offended is a choice. Do you understand? Hey, this ain't no new news. People are offensive, right? Right? And some of you are married to it. You're married to an offense. It just feels like at every turn. Like, what do you, what do you not get? But, but, but the offense is an event. To be offended is a choice. So I can choose not to be offended by your offense. And that's exactly what Proverbs 19.11 says. A person's wisdom yields patience. It's to one's glory to overlook what? And if it's, it's not saying that people aren't offensive, because by gum, people are offensive. But it's our choice to be offended. And, and I'm amazed at how fragile some people are. Like, you can't say this, you can't say that, you can't do this, because you, you might offend somebody. Well, that's their fault. <laughs> I'm offended that they'd be so nice. It's like, well, well, sorry you're offended. That's your choice to be offended. And I'm not saying be abrasive. I'm just saying check your offense and how much you hold on to it. And so I think we need to start asking God, God, is there an offense that I'm holding on to that I need to let go of? See, the act of another to offend is out of your control. That's an event. But the choice to be offended is within your control. And that is purely your choice. Do you understand? And life is a lot better when you choose not to be so dang offended. <laughs> Dave, your life will be so much better when you choose not to be so offended. It just makes life and relationships so much better. Now watch this. I'm going to bring this home. Just watch this. Actual account in the Bible of Jesus and this woman. Jesus left that place and went down to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. 
He didn't just want to be bothered by people. Yet he couldn't keep his presence a secret. In fact, as soon as he heard, she heard about him, this woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, so it means he, she wasn't a Jew. She wasn't part of God's, God's group there. Born in uh, Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, this is what Jesus says. Woman, first let the children eat what they want, eat all they want. For it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. You see what he just told her? You want something from me. It's not right to take what I want to give my people and give it to you dogs. That's what he told her. You see what he just called her? Okay, how many of us say, are you freaking Jewish? Right? I mean, how offended would we be? Right? Lord, she replied, even the dogs on the table eat the children's crumbs. This woman got some brass ones, man. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demons left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. I mean, when you look at these two, Jesus and this woman, it looked like they'd be beefing. You know what I'm saying? They're just getting... He wasn't being mean to her. He was, he was making a point. And she pressed past the offense because she was one tough cookie. And she pressed past what would have offended others and got a miracle. Because she didn't let the what could be seen as offensive drive a wedge in the relationship. There are great things on the other side of offense. Do you understand? Ecclesiastes 7. Do not take to heart all the things that people say. It means don't listen to what people Get off freaking social media. Because you take all that stuff to heart. Because people are saying stuff. Unless you hear what people are saying about you. He's saying you don't want to know what people are saying about you. That's what he's saying. He said, They're talking about you and it ain't good. So get off all that stuff. You don't want to know what they're saying about you. Your heart knows how many times that you yourself have cursed others. Just let it go. Don't get offended by it. You've done the same things. Colossians 3. Make allowances for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you. You've got to let it go. Do you understand? At the end of Paul's life, I was listening to a pastor talk about his wife who had just passed away. And he was putting her life in perspective. And in so doing, he was putting life in perspective. And he went to 2 Timothy. I didn't put that on there. 2 Timothy 4, 7, and 8. And that scripture says, I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. And I kept the faith. And there's a crown of glory waiting for me. I fought the good fight. Don't you know that there are some good fights worth fighting? And don't you know that there are some bad fights that aren't worth fighting? And most relationships are divided and marriages fail and families torn asunder and friends separate 
not because of good works. When Paul uses that word good, I fought the good fight. It means a useful fight, an honorable fight, a fight that furthers God's kingdom. And wouldn't we say that most of the fights that we fight with each other about, especially because we've been offended, are not that kind of good? And unfortunately, it's not until we get to the end of life that we can look back and realize how bad most of our fights were. Do you understand what I'm saying? And how futile they were. The problem is that the misnomer of when we say, when I'm old, I realize. Here's why it's a misnomer. Because you only know that you're old if you know the day you're going to die. Because for someone who's going to die at 50, when they're 48, they're old. But for someone who's going to live to 100, when they're 50, they're still young. Do you understand? And this is why it's a misnomer to talk about old. Because we don't know. And unfortunately, it's not usually until we get to the end that we look back and think, you know what? All those relationships, all those fights, <laughs> those weren't worth having. They just weren't worth having. Make sure, Rick, come up here. Make sure that when you, if you're married, make sure that when you fight with your spouse, it's a good fight. Because if it ain't a good fight, stop fighting. Make sure that when you fight with your child, that if you're going to have a fight with your kid, you better make sure that it's a good fight worth fighting. And if it's not, stop fighting. You better make sure, we better make sure that the fights we're having within our family and extended family are good fights worth fighting. And if it's not a good fight worth fighting, stop fighting. You understand? I wonder how many friendships have been lost and marriages have been dissolved and families have been separated because of bad fights. Because there's been an offense that have been held on to that when you look at it and examine it, especially when you get old because you're really old, you realize it was not an offense worth holding on to. I have fought the good fight. It means I'm not going to fight the bad ones anymore. And I finished my race. Every one of us, when we enter a race, we think we're running a marathon. The fact is, some of us are running a sprint and don't realize how near the end we are. Finish your race. If it's long, run long and hard. If it ends up being short, run short and fast. But finish your race without holding on to the offense. Because every time we hold on to the offense, it creates bitterness in our heart, which is a chain around our ankles. And we do not run far nor fast. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. 
I have finished my race and I have kept the faith. Friends, keep the faith. Keep the faith. And keep the faith without the offense. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is so important to our relationships. It's vital to our marriage. It's crucial to our friendships and family. I want you to pray with me. Now here's your turn. Here's your turn. Ask God, God, what offense do I need to let go of? What fight do I need to stop fighting? What are the bad fights? I need to quit fighting. Ask Him, say, Father, You've forgiven me of some pretty grave offenses. Help me forgive others of their offenses against me. Tell them, say, God, I want to fight the good fights. Because there's fights worth fighting. And I want to fight them with integrity, with a great deal of ferociousness. I don't want to get beat in a good fight. But help me not confuse a good fight and a bad fight. Thank you for the forgiveness of my offenses. Help me forgive others their offenses against me and not to carry their offenses and not to be offended by offensive people. Tell them, say, God, I want my marriage to win. I want my family to win. I want my relationship with my children to win. I want my friendships to win. Help me fight the good fight. Help me finish this race. Help me keep the faith. And in 2020, make my relationships and my family bless. And help me love them like you love me. And for that, Father, we give you thanks. You are a good God. And even when I was your enemy, you battled hard for me. And you have been so, so good to me. Thank you, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen.